This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Long-term care has become a federal election issue as NDP leader Jagmeet Singh promises to ban the opening of any new for-profit nursing homes. If elected, Singh is promising to implement a 10-year plan to take profit out of long-term care homes altogether and create national standards to hold institutions to account. It's an issue we have discussed many times on Fight Back, especially during the pandemic, which has seen more than 15,200 COVID-related nursing home deaths in Canada, nearly 3,800 of those in Ontario. And Jagmeet Singh rightly points out that for-profit facilities had higher infection and death rates during the COVID-19 pandemic. Fight Back got reaction to Jagmeet Singh's plan on Wednesday. While filling in for Libby, I was joined by long-term care advocate Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos and Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents for-profit nursing homes. As we look at what are the issues we need to solve today uh, coming out of the pandemic and, and indeed going into this fourth wave right now, we know that we need to mobilize to, uh, to really make sure that we're making the investments that uh, will help us meet the needs of our residents. We have 40,000 people on a wait list for long-term care in Ontario. Uh, and we know from the uh, parliamentary budget officer um, you know, they, they, they projected that there were 52,000 people in Canada on a wait list. So their numbers don't really work for us. And they're still saying it's going to be $13.7 billion a year to rebuild long-term care across the country. What we, what we're really focused on is we don't have a lot of time. Population over 80 is going to double in Ontario over the next 13 years. It takes us eight years to, to train a, a, a medical specialist, four years for a nurse. Uh, we are in a crisis situation right now with regard to our staffing uh, and where we're seeing um, everybody coming together remarkably. Uh, we're seeing, and I actually just got off a call with our nonprofit partners, uh, we are seeing nonprofits, private homes, the large, large uh, publicly traded companies and municipal homes. We're all actually working together to try and fix the problems on the ground. How are we going to recruit staff? How are we going to build staff? How are we going to rebuild the sector, uh, recognizing that the dire state of our economy overall? It, it's going to take all of us being creative, and we need to make sure that as we're reimagining long-term care, we're balancing out what is a home and what is care. And maybe we move away from a cookie-cutter approach to this is a box that is long-term care and start to look at more specialized models of care. And one of our private members is partnered with a hospital in Ottawa where there are 60 hospital beds embedded in their long-term care home. Uh, that's the kind of innovation and partnership, private-public partnerships that we need to see to really make sure that uh, we are using the broader system resources uh, as best we can while trying to build 
uh, new for the future, both new buildings, but also that new workforce. Uh, we don't have time to fight. Uh, and where we're seeing the leadership, it really is within our sector where we are coming together to build for our aging population and not trying to divide us. We, we just don't have time for division. We go to Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, professor at Ontario Tech University who specializes in family caregiving and is an advocate for those in long-term care facilities and an occasional guest here on Fight Back. Should we start with, uh, I know you've been listening along, getting your reaction to what Donna Duncan had to sure. say about the issue of Absolutely. for-profit? Absolutely. You know, not unlike the name of your show, uh, we will, me and Donna will agree on one thing, that this entire sector is in crisis. Where we will vehemently disagree is that this is not the time to fight. And I will tell Donna and I will tell everybody in the for-profit sector who wants to continue ignoring the role of ownership that we won't stop and we will fight with every breath we have to end this cancerous model on this sector, which we know firsthand led to the worst collective mass casualty event in our long-term care history. So I'm frankly getting a little annoyed with the complete glossing over of the decades worth of evidence against for-profit only made all the more glaring during COVID, where we have multiple evidence, certainly at the provincial level, that the for-profit homes had significantly more COVID-19 deaths for every 100 registered beds. You have to discuss the elephant in the room and pretending it doesn't exist does nothing for all of us to move this agenda forward. It's it's disingenuous at best and it's dangerous at worst. Long-term care advocate Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos and Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Students physically returned to class on Thursday, September 9th. Many Ontario educators are expressing concerns about safety, especially with COVID-19 case numbers fueled by the highly transmissible Delta variant on the rise. We've learned from a Toronto Star report that teachers have no choice but to return. The Ontario Labour Ministry has rejected all COVID-19 work refusals, just 44 in total, from staff working in the education sector. So what rights do teachers and staff have when it comes to protecting their own safety while on the job at school as the pandemic continues? And what about the unvaccinated students and how they could be affected by the Delta variant? Joining me on Wednesday to discuss, Dr. Eric Tucker, professor at Osgoode Law School at York University, who has extensive knowledge of Ontario's occupational health and safety system, biostatistician Ryan Imgrund, and Karen Littlewood, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Well, I think everybody's worried right now with the rise of Delta and the rise of the numbers in the public. Um, If there's a possibility to have breakthrough cases in people that are double vaccinated, we're hearing lots about booster shots and when they should be administered. But but it's more so um, just all of the protections that need to be in place in the schools. Our members are go all the way from early childhood education up into the university sector, and we're looking at having everything in place that we need to have. Ventilation, we've had some announcements about HEPA filters being in the classroom. Mm-hmm. We know that they're going to be essential. 
but are they going to be um, in place in time? Are, is there going to be training involved? Should a HEPA filter be turned up when students are in a classroom and take their masks off to eat? Students getting together just in the classroom to eat all together. I can't do that in a restaurant, but I can sit in the classroom with 30 plus kids with masks off. So many concerns. With only two weeks left until teachers and students go back to class, what are what are you looking for specifically? What will make your and everybody every other teacher's life easier? Yeah, well, you know, we, we, we need reassurances that the ventilation is going to be done. And from what I've heard, that's not necessarily going to happen just because the time has not been there. Boards have to procure the, the HEPA filters and have them in place and then set out recommendations. Vaccination numbers need to increase. We, we really do need to have better masks, especially in high-risk situations. If boards are going to have students singing, that's a high-risk situation. But the distancing and the ability to, to keep a distance from others, all of the medical professionals are saying that's essential. Is that actually going to be in place? We need to look at the numbers now and perhaps change the, the plan a bit in order to allow for that. Ryan Imgrund is an educator in York Region and a biostatistician who's been providing daily COVID-19 data analysis for Ontario and Canada, also an occasional guest here on Fight Back, as well as Dr. Eric Tucker, professor at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University, who has extensive knowledge of Ontario's occupation occupational health and safety system. Ryan, I'll begin with you. How risky is the return to in-class learning based on the data? Yeah, it is extremely risky right now. Really what we're looking at now for a September 2020 for a September 2021 20, return to school is a watered down plan of the September 2020 return to school. Um, we've got a lot of the things that were in place before are not in place anymore. We don't really have cohorts anymore. We don't have designated school boards. We have cafeterias wide open. We have extracurricular activities going back. And really, we haven't seen the ventilation changes. We haven't seen changes to masks. We haven't seen big, significant changes that will help us, um, you know, fight this the Delta variant, which is really, really hurting Ontario right now. Uh, what repercussions or, or what action can teachers take uh, to ensure that their work environment is safe, the school environment is safe for them and their students? Right. Well, of course, uh, looking at it from the perspective of occupational health and safety, uh, uh, teachers, like all workers, uh, have a right to a healthy and safe work environment. And there's a general duty on employers to uh, provide workers uh, with all reasonable precautions uh, to protect their health and safety. And so teachers often find themselves in a situation uh, where employers uh, following uh, government guidelines have uh, uh, said that, well, yes, your workplace is safe, you have nothing to worry about, uh, and yet, uh, nevertheless, uh, teachers do have uh, uh, reasonable concerns about whether or not those precautions are adequate. Uh, so that leaves teachers with the question of whether or not they can legally refuse uh, to work in an unsafe environment. Dr. Eric Tucker, professor at Osgoode Law School at York University, biostatistician Ryan Imgrund, and Karen Little, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, Canada's involvement in Afghanistan going forward. What will that look like? 
we discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The chaotic situation in Afghanistan has continued to deteriorate and became dangerous and deadly at the Kabul airport on Thursday. There were two suicide bombings outside Hamid Karzai Airport carried out by the Islamic State terror group. There were casualties. Dozens of Afghan people, including children, were killed, as were 13 U.S. soldiers. The Islamic State group is even more radical than the Taliban and has carried out a wave of attacks targeting civilians. Thursday morning at 8 our time, we also learned from Canada's Acting Chief of Defence Staff, General Wayne Eyre, that our country's mission to evacuate Canadians and allies from Afghanistan had ended at midnight and that at that time, no further evacuation flights were being planned. So where do we go from here and how are ISIS, Taliban and Al-Qaeda vying for power in Afghanistan? Joining me for this discussion, Chris Eklund, founder of the Canadian Heroes Foundation, and Dr. Elliot Tepper, professor of international relations at Carleton University. Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are still, I think, very closely interrelated. I, there were an awful lot of foreign fighters involved in the Taliban uh, blitzkrieg of, uh, that you know, brought them from nowhere to power within a matter of weeks. Uh, so the, I think there's still an interrelationship there, but they are both opposed to the to the ISIS-K, the Khorasan group, as they call themselves. Khorasan being a traditional name for the area surrounding them uh, where they are. There's likely to be some bloodshed there. From our view, sitting here, there's really not a dime's worth of difference between them. But that that um, in terms of how they would behave if they got power, I suspect that the remember the. Taliban is now the best armed terrorist group on the planet. They have taken over all of those supplies that the Americans equipped the um, Afghan army with. They are in control of Bagram Air Base. I don't, they don't seem to have an air force at the minute. But they are uh, very well positioned to take on domestic groups, including ISIS. But ISIS, as we have seen now, let's back up and say, you mentioned the two bombings. This plays into the denouement, Jane. This, the end of this terrible, tragic uh, Western involvement in, in Afghanistan took place today, as you said, with Canada saying this is our last as of today. The uh, only people who could get out were, had to go to that airport, and ISIS uh, said, first of all, the Taliban said, we're controlling the, all the access points, and we're not going to let any Afghan citizens go. So people that we want to take out, no way. But uh, then ISIS clearly indicated they planned a terrorist attack. So we were in position, the Western forces were in position of saying, do not come to the airport, which is your only way out. Mm -hmm. And that's what ISIS has done today. Let's go over to Chris Eklund, founder of the Canadian Heroes Foundation. Chris, talk about the people left behind, how many people there are, what their connections to Canada and other Western countries are at this point. It's an extremely confusing 
situation for most people to kind of understand how everything operates in Afghanistan. It's it's definitely uh, almost basically a one-off, but I'm actually talking with some of our, our, our team right now on the ground, and, um, you know, we don't know if uh, any of those injured were ones in our care or not. Um, but right now, everybody's just trying to stay uh, stay positive, and uh, we're, we're, as a country, saying uh, a lot of prayers uh, for them. As world nations, are we going to leave the people on their own with the Taliban in charge? Is there the possibility we could go to war in Afghanistan to rid that country of the Taliban for once and for all? Chris? Well... Dr. Tepper uh, knows a, a lot more about international stuff than, mm-hmm. than I do, but I'm, I'm sure he will agree that in Afghanistan you don't know what's going to happen kind of tomorrow. But uh, what I've been saying, and I think a lot of people have been saying, is that, you know, the future, it's, it's unclear. Our crystal ball doesn't uh, is a little foggy. Anything can happen uh, going forward. But what the people of Afghanistan need to know is that the whole world is watching. We are all praying. And like I said beforehand, um, I I can speak for myself and a lot of others that we're simply not not giving up on them. And Dr. Tepper, to you. I can't see at the moment a re-engagement of the international community in Afghanistan unless they renege on their promise of not being a base for international terrorism. There is no doubt at all that in the grand battle battle between those who value democratic space compared to authoritarianism, authoritarianism has just scored a victory. Dr. Elliot Tepper, professor of international relations at Carleton University, and Chris Eklund, founder of the Canadian Heroes Foundation. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. If you are double vaccinated... Three-quarters of us have received both shots. How much empathy are you feeling toward the unvaccinated? According to a recent Angus Reid poll, most vaccinated Canadians are indifferent to the unvaccinated getting sick with the virus. With 83% saying they have no sympathy for those who choose not to get the COVID vaccine and then become ill. A Toronto Star report on this topic says that anecdotally, Patience is even wearing thin among healthcare professionals. A panel of experts joined me to discuss the mindset affecting most Canadians. Dr. Sarah Conrath is a social psychologist at Indiana University. Dr. Thomas Unger is psychiatrist-in-chief at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. And Dr. Alan Vaisman is an infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. Yeah, I, I perfectly understand that there is now a progression towards having less and less, less and less sympathy for those individuals who are not vaccinated. For myself personally, as a healthcare provider, I think it's important for healthcare providers to realize that this shouldn't translate to when providing care for those individuals, because our responsibility as healthcare workers is to just to do what's best for the patients, regardless of their personal views or regardless of what brought them into the hospital. I perfectly understand why this is a general sentiment in the general public. Uh, Dr. Thomas Unger. Yeah, it's really kind of understandable because this thing is drawn out now for a year and a half, and we're all tired and experiencing what what people are compassion fatigue, um, especially when there's a potential wonderful solution there to protect ourselves that not everyone's taking advantage of. So 
it's a pretty expected dynamic. We're human. It's frustrating to not see others get vaccinated. But the real key is to really understand uh, we're here to help people no matter what. We continue to provide care all the time. We do not judge. Um, and it's really our job to try to get people's thoughts and find out what it is that's holding them back and try to understand why they're hesitant rather than judge them for it. When you say it's our job, do you mean us as individuals or you as professionals? It's mine as a professional, but really as a member of society, instead of just being angry and pushing someone, if you can try to understand what what's going on in their thinking that's got them at a place where they're at, because sometimes only by understanding it can you be empathic and can you understand why they're doing that, and that can open up the door to a change. Dr. Vaisman, in terms of trying to have empathy, empathy and understand, as Dr. Unger was pointing out, it's, it's our job as members of society to be empathetic, to try to figure out what is going under, on underneath. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think when you look at the remaining individuals who are not vaccinated in the province, which is about 18 percent, probably a very small proportion of those individuals are these people that we colloquially call anti-vaxxers who are actively spreading this information. Outside of that, you have a large chunk of people who are either have poor health literacy or poorly connected to the medical system or poorly connected to society in general. So I think having empathy for that and understanding what's going on is really important. And of course, it is the role of the provincial and municipal government to do whatever they can to try to reach out to those individuals, to go to them and to speak to them and to try to convince them to get vaccinated. Dr. Conrath, your thoughts on this, and I understand from my producer, Zeev, that you are Canadian working at Indiana University. As an empathy scientist, I know the research shows that even when things are fine, it's empathy takes effort. And then also that when we're tired, it's even harder. So obviously, we are all exhausted. So I'm not surprised to see that the majority of Canadians right now, Canadians are known for their empathy but that the majority of Canadians right now are not feeling empathy for people who get sick when they're unvaccinated. I guess rather than being angry and frustrated, how should we, and, and I'll go to Dr. Unger about this, how should we change our mindset so we can stay positive, stay fresh, uh, and stay enthusiastic for the future, despite what's going on? I think as we see restrictions coming in, there are limits to, be, to citizenship and to freedoms. And we're starting to see those come in for political reasons and whatever. And I think that's very encouraging because if somebody else is making that risky choice to not get vaccinated, I don't want it to affect me. I want to be able to get back to my life and my family's life as much as we can. So as those restrictions come in, those choices will be more about those individuals and perhaps affect me less. So I think that's very encouraging that we're finally starting to see more and more of those those restrictions on our freedoms come based on the choice. People can make their individual choice, but at least we can keep moving forward. Uh, Dr. Conrath, your final thoughts. My final thoughts that we need to also have empathy and compassion for ourselves. Um, And I think if we can rebuild and recover in the next little while, that will help us to restore the type of empathy maybe we want to have for people who are different. Um, So I, I would just recommend that that's the next phase for us is to just take care of ourselves and try to recover. Dr. Sarah Conrath, social psychologist at Indiana University. Dr. Thomas Unger, psychiatrist-in-chief at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. And Dr. Alon Baseman, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. 
I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Sita in Mississauga, who phoned about the crisis in Afghanistan. Canada and U.S. went to find bin Laden. We know eventually they will leave, but they overstayed 20 years. This made the Afghan people weaker by depending on them as a safety net. Pulling out the troop without a plan was a horrible and sad mistake by these two countries. They should have started the process to relocate interpreters, etc., and family a year ago when Trump made that decision. Plus, the army told those in charge what will happen to those who left behind. So, but most of the blame I will give to the country, Afghanistan itself. Why they don't have a braver president and an army to protect its, its, its citizens, um, this country would not fall like overnight into these in the arms of the um, Taliban. But anyway, the sacrifice and the loss of lives and the hard work our soldiers did did not go wasted. The Afghan people accepted and wanted changes. Children went to school. Women gained their strength and voice. And Canada should not stop helping. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.